Next, ReachMD's special series, Focus on Diabetes. This month, we're taking an in-depth look at diabetes, the disease now affecting nearly 1 in 10 Americans. Tune in all this month for the latest research, treatments, and prevention methods to gain new insights for your practice. We're spending billions each year to research possible cures for type 1 diabetes. Is that cure already on the shelf? Welcome to our special focus on diabetes on ReachMD the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom, and joining us to discuss the first clinical trial using generic drugs to try to cure type 1 diabetes is Dr. Denise Elfaustman, Associate Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School and the Director of the Immunobiology Laboratories at the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. In 2001, her lab reversed type 1 diabetes in mice with end-stage disease, a project that's now being translated into human clinical trials. Dr. Faustman does key research for other autoimmune diseases, including Crohn's disease, lupus, scleroderma, rheumatoid arthritis, Jogren syndrome, and multiple sclerosis. Dr. Faustman, welcome to Reach MD. Thank you, Dr. Bloom, for inviting me. So let's talk about autoimmune disease in general. What is it, and what are we thinking of doing to combat it? Well, it's a big category, right? <laughs> so the big category, if you look at the grocery list, which people often forget what's in it and what's out, is there's probably at least 50 autoimmune diseases. The most common ones, of course, are type 1 diabetes, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, scleroderma, Sjogren's syndrome, hypothyroidism, psoriasis. So it's defined by pathogenic T cells, usually T cells, but pathogenic immune system for sure attacking self-tissues. And what about type 1 diabetes? Have we always thought that this is an autoimmune disease, or when did we discover that that was true? Well, I'm old enough to not remember when it wasn't an autoimmune disease, but I'm told that, you know, 20, 30 years ago, maybe even 30 years ago, it wasn't so certain it was an autoimmune disease. But the data is very clear right now that type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disease. And take us through, on a molecular level, what happens in type 1 diabetes with these pathogenic T-cells. Certainly. So what the immune system should be doing is educating the T-cells to self-non-self before they ever get in the periphery. And that can occur in the bone marrow and the thymus and other immune regions. And the immune system is somewhat inefficient, too, because you produce millions of T-cells and only a few good guys should get out of the bone marrow or the thymus. But the general belief in autoimmunity is that selection process that weeds out the good guys from the bad guys is faulty in autoimmunity. So at some point in your life, a few of the cells that should have died there get out and in the periphery, they find the antigen they weren't tolerant to and they kill that tissue. What's important to remember is this is a long process, so often patients will come in and they'll say, my kid got the flu and they got autoimmunity. But what people in the research area know is that kid was cooking away with autoimmunity for years prior to the flu that precipitated it. So you're just saying that that just happened to be a coincidence in time rather than a cause effect? That's right. That's right. Well, of course, when you're sick, you need more insulin. So what commonly happens is a child gets sick or even an adult because type 1 diabetes can occur in adults. And, you know, you need a lot of insulin. You have a lot of steroid release from the stress reaction. And all of a sudden, your insulin requirements go up, but you don't have the reserve in the pancreas. And so suddenly somebody tells you, oh, you're a type 1 diabetic. That's right. And what you're saying is... That Everybody, didn't occur last week. <laughs> right, and, and everybody's bound to get the flu sometime over a two- or three-year period of time, and that's what gives you the clue that your body's become less 
self-regulating an insulin, and suddenly everybody thinks that's the cause. Yeah. You just don't have sufficient reserve when you're stressed. So then it precipitates itself. So with all this as a background, you began doing some research to try and help with figuring out a longer-term treatment to diabetes. And what did you find in your lab in 2001 about type 1 diabetes that's led to this clinical trial? So we were working on this concept that it didn't matter who in the world had the most islet cells to transplant the disease and cure it. But the problem everybody clinically was seeing is if you put cell transplants into people with type 1 diabetes, the disease reoccurred. Okay. So that was kind of sad, right? Because you couldn't stop it with the common immunosuppressive drugs. So in 2001, that was our aim. And gradually, over a long period of time, we thought we had two compounds that we could move forward in these end-stage mice and try to change the immune system so we could do an islet transplant. But that was the real surprise of what we discovered. The good news was that the animals were permanently cured of type 1 diabetes by this relatively simple immune intervention, but the source of the insulin was the real amazing data, and that was that the pancreas had spontaneously regenerated once the immune system had been corrected. So the source of the insulin was the pancreas, not the islet transplant we had simultaneously performed. So what's the significance of this finding, and how does it relate to the human clinical trial? So the significance of it is, one, it was end-stage diabetic mice. So up until this time, many people had hundreds of interventions that worked in not-yet-diabetic mice. But of course, that's not very applicable to people who have the disease. And then there were some interventions that worked in new-onset diabetic mice, but to actually reverse end-stage diabetic mice was quite an achievement even to the mouse community. And then the other implication of this trial was that targeting the defective immune system was central to developing better therapies for type 1 diabetes, that this wasn't what I sometimes refer to as a VAT disease. And who's got the bigger VAT of stem cells is going to cure more diabetics. But this was a fundamental immune system disorder, and you needed to correct that first to see if humans had similar regenerative properties. So what was the treatment that you used in the mice, and how did it work? So it's 18 years of work, but effectively we identified two different populations of cells that were close relatives that were the pathogenic T cells. And the way we identified them was finding out that the proteins of these cells were different. And furthermore, we identified them by the fact that the proteins were on cell death pathways. So that gave us a tool similar to antibiotics to create compounds or identify compounds that allowed selective death of only autoreactive cells not the other 99% of good cells. So we decided to intervene in these mice to kill off these two populations of cells, and it effectively did that and reestablished a normal immune system in the host. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to our special focus on diabetes on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom, and joining us to discuss the first clinical trial using generic drugs to try and cure type 1 diabetes is Dr. Denise L. Faustman, Associate Professor of Medicine at the Harvard Medical School and Director of the Immunobiology Laboratories at the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. So what were the two compounds that you used in the mice, and can they be used in the human? Yeah, sure. So I'll talk about pathways and then talk about compounds that hit those pathways. So one pathway is to get the newly bad T-cell that just came out of the bone marrow that didn't get educated with class 1 and self-peptide, the educational complex that should be in the bone marrow. 
So one way to kill that cell is to reintroduce class 1 and self-peptide, in other words, a protein therapeutic. Unfortunately, in the pharmacy existing now, there's no drug such as that, so we don't have a way to take that rapidly to the clinic. Now, that cell eventually differentiates into the highly activated killer cell of the pancreas, and that cell dies through a different death pathway, and that's the TNF pathway. And the good thing about the TNF pathway is that there's many compounds that are known to bind to the TNF receptor or induce TNF that can be brought forward into the clinic. So it's the TNF pathway that we're targeting first in the clinic in people who have existing type 1 diabetes. And if we only treat the TNF pathway Will we actually cure diabetes in these patients? So if you talk about a mouse cure like we talked about a mouse cure, one-time, lifetime treatment, never have to be treated again, normal blood sugars the rest of your life, I don't think that's going to happen. But if you're talking about a cure where you're intervening, killing off one population of bad cell, and you're going to be revaccinated at some frequency for the newly arising bad cells, then that's what we're testing in the clinic because we think it's feasible, so it should be tested. So you're saying if I'm a type 1 diabetic, I might have to get a shot every 6 to 12 months, which kills off all of the circulating cells, and it takes my body a while to replenish those, and in that intervening time, I'll be disease-free. That's what it shows in the mice. So if we just take one of the two compounds and re-immunize it repeatedly, we can get normal glycemia. So is that what you're doing in humans right now? Yeah. So we're not at therapeutic doses in humans, but we started the initial phase one with the low-dose to start to get approval for phase one so we can go to phase two. And what is the compound that you're using in phase one? So it's a generic drug. So that's the beauty of why we're already in the clinic. It's a drug called BCG that's been around for 80 years. And BCG has been used both for cancer therapy at very high dose and at low dose for protection from tuberculosis. So a huge therapeutic window to work with for people who've already been immunized with it. And it's reason for use in this trial is because it induces your own TNF. So we're trying to induce the patient's own TNF to see if we can move forward. So in your clinical trials, the endpoint is not to then take the patient for an islet transplant or give them any of their own or other person's cells, but to make them insulin competent on their own. Sure. That's our first goal. So we, of course, don't know in the human population If you've had diabetes 50 years, what percentage of people with diabetes 50 years still have regenerative function versus people 40 years out, what percent have regenerative function, and what percent five years out? Those are things we're going to learn in the trial, but what we're certain of is if you don't remove these bad T-cells, the endogenous regeneration has no chance. And how long do you expect it to take from now until patients might actually be using this in a full treatment regimen, not in a research setting? The pace of research is related to money and science and also ability to organize these trials. One of the things that speeds this trial along, of course, is this is a generic drug. So a lot of trials are cumbersome because you have to enroll a thousand patients here, a thousand patients there, another thousand patients there, and then the FDA is going to come along and say, follow them a year and a half, you know, for toxicity, not for a therapeutic benefit, for toxicity. So we're hoping we don't have to do those large enrollment sizes because we've put so much money and effort into these blood tests to monitor good cells and bad T cells. 
and those are, uh, biomarkers are going to give us a heads up on whether even at low doses or moderate doses, we can start to see the removal of the pathogenic cells and what are the windows of removal of these pathogenic cells. So what speeds us along is not having to do such enrollment size to know the basic science of what's going on in these people because of these T-cell markers. And phase one is taking place in your lab and clinics right at in Boston? Yes, yes. And if people wanted to enroll, are there still spots open for that? We have, of course, because this is a trial of people with existing disease. Thousands of people want to be in the disease. But we welcome everybody to contact us. We have a web address called org. Not too creative here. <laughs> and it has information about the trial. It has information about the basic research. You can contact us. There's multiple ways people participate. One is they just register with us and we put them on the mailing list and we try to do a newsletter twice a year. A lot of people want to come in to get the initial blood screening done. And we have people every morning from all over the world that have waited months to get in just to get the initial blood screening done. And then we put all that data into our computer bank. So as we start to enroll in different groups, let's say the FDA says, okay, we want you to do 100 patients that are 5 to 10 years out with diabetes with perfect hemoglobin A1Cs, autoantibodies, and, you know, whatever their uh, clinical criteria they come up with, we can then search that database and say, okay, these 20 people we already know have an interest. We'll contact them. So there's value in registering so that we begin to know your interest and um, also uh, being able to track if you do have an interest and be notified. Do you expect when you get to phase two trials that you'll have other sites? No, we will not have other sites because we don't have, usually you start to do multiple sites when you have enrollment issues. Let me give you an example. If you're doing trials in new-onset diabetics, you're never going to have enough patients at one site. So we have thousands of patients who want to be in this trial, so we have no shortage of patients. The reason we also don't do multiple sites is um, we've designed large robotic platforms to do all these blood assays. We moved one robotic platform from one side of the lab to the other side of the lab, and it took us eight months to recalibrate it. So these are not easily mobile clinical tests that can be done in multiple centers at this time. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Denise L. Faustman, Associate Professor of Medicine at the Harvard Medical School and Director of the Immunobiology Laboratories at the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston for joining me to discuss the first clinical trial using generic drugs to try to cure type 1 diabetes. You've been listening to our special focus on diabetes on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. For a complete program guide and podcast, visit www.reachmd.com. For comments or questions, call us toll-free at the number listed on our website, and thank you for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Diabetes. For a program guide and complete list of shows, please visit us at reachmd.com.